Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited to today to have as my guest my colleague Jeff Vogley. He's an associate professor of law here at Georgia State. He's a graduate of Boston University and Temple. He is an absolute expert in cybersecurity law, privacy law, technologic, technology ethics, which I think we probably all need in this day and age, um, and intertwined in all of that uh, is, is a, an expert on standing and the author of a book Jeff wrote called Being Watched. Legal Challenges to Government Surveillance, which is going to be mostly what we're going to talk about today. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. So I'm going to ask you first how you got interested in privacy and, and cybersecurity. But I do want to mention at the outset that this podcast is going to be bookended by two cases, a 1972 case called Laird versus Tatum, which Jeff's going to talk about in a few minutes, and then the, the Clapper case, which, which everyone knows who teaches standing or reads about standing, knows about a much more recent case. These cases, almost half a century apart, um, actually treat standing and government surveillance in very similar ways. So we're going to bookend book in this pod with those two cases. But first, Jeff, how did you get started with, with cybersecurity sure. and privacy? Uh, well, it, it, a lot of personal interest. So I, when I started college, I was uh, very disillusioned. Um, and uh, after a couple of years, uh, I actually, Buddy and I both dropped out. We were both in the Naval ROTC program. We were both Marine Option ROTC candidates. And we dropped out and enlisted in the Marine Corps, which was great and weird at the same time. But it, I was a Marine <laughs> in the early 90s, uh, did four years as an enlisted Marine, uh, ended up as a corporal squad leader. and. Um, during that time, there was an emergence of a couple of Marine Corps doctrines, one called the Three Block War, and related to that was the Strategic Corporal. This uh, won't bore you with the details there, but it, it was it interested me in the policy decisions behind this. So when I went back to finish my degree in mathematics, I started grad school in mathematics, I was thinking about uh, national security and, and uh, what the term at the time was not, it was information security or cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, so I, I worked in defense contracting for a while at BBM Technologies and Lockheed Martin Advanced Technologies Labs, and I worked on information security and applied cryptography and intelligence applications for small units. And I'd later go on to Army Officer Candidate School where I became an intelligence officer, and I was a battalion S2, which is the battalion intelligence officer. And uh, so those interests, and, and in and around that time, actually, I think it was while I was in grad school, I went to a conference called, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was a great conference. Wish it still did. It was called Com Computers, Freedom, and Privacy. <laughs> and it was held at MIT that year. Can and we have, I'm sorry, Jeff, can we have freedom and privacy in the age of computers? Just kidding. Go ahead. And hey, I mean, this is, that was the whole point. It was, yes. <laughs> it was, the, it had been around since the 90s. I forget when it started, but it was, uh, it, when it was uh, technologists, lawyers, policymakers, uh, science fiction authors. Uh, they would all gather and they would talk about what the present and future meant for technology and freedom and privacy. Um, and it was at that conference when I realized, you know what, I think if I want to work, do meaningful work in this space, um, I need a JD. And right. so I didn't go directly right after that, but that was when the, the plan started to go to law school uh, to, do, to do this on the policy side, on the research side. Um, 
uh, cybersecurity, privacy, national security, and that sort of thing. So I, uh, after law school, I did the big law thing. I worked in a privacy and data protection practice group, um, but I knew I wanted to, eventually I wanted to teach. And uh, so I went on the market and here I am. Okay, excellent. Privacy um, and cybersecurity. Jeff, I'm gonna go off script for a second here because I've done about, a, I think this is my 109th or 10th or something podcast. Um, and you're the first, I'm pretty sure you're the first Marine. Um, so I am very interested in oh. how terrible basic training was. Give us two minutes on basic training. Oh, well, okay. So first of all, yeah, in, in the Marine Corps, they don't call it basic training. They call it boot camp. But basic training is what your parents should have taught you. Okay. Um, so I went to Paris Island and it's... Uh, the only thing I know about Paris Island is the Billy Joel song, which is really good. Go ahead. Oh, does Billy... I, I am not familiar with... Uh, yes. I mean, I... I anyway... Paris Island is uh, well. It's 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 not pleasant. Um, it's but it was, you know, um, it, it, unlike Officer Candidate School, um, boot camp Marine Corps boot camp is very much a you know you 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 just do what you're told to do as fast as possible, um, and you keep your head down and you'll be fine. Uh, generally speaking, I mean, fine is a relative term. Officer <laughs> Candidate School was actually, in many ways, much tougher. So, boot camp was physically very tough. Officer Candidate School is mentally very challenging because they put you, they rotate you through leadership positions, and they expect you to act like a junior officer. And, right. and you, it's it makes it much more difficult because you have the stress of leadership as well as the other stressors. Uh, so it was, you know, um, sand fleas and uh, the the usual. Uh, silent stories but uh but yeah it's it's 13 weeks of not a lot of fun but then you get out you get out of there and then i went to school of infantry which was then i got to you know play with blowing things up and that sort of thing but, well i'm glad you're on our side jeff um i think you're on our side um so i am at, at a 30 at a thirty thousand foot level um i i think can we kind of oversimplify this to say that all we all have an interest in the government collecting enough information about our enemies to keep us safe. I think we all agree on that. We want the government to have the information to keep us safe. But we don't want the government to be able to spy on us in ways that seriously undermine our privacy interests and that create the risk of dictatorship. Is that a fair way of, of describing the, the, the 30,000 foot policy issues at stake here? Sure. I mean, there's there's a lot of complexity underneath that, and, yes. and drawing a bright line between those two spaces really, really hard, and it it will depend on your perspective. Okay. So when um, when does the data collection become um, democracy endangering surveillance? That's yeah, exactly. Yes. That's that's a tough thing to do, and and um, surveillance. And I remember it's not when we're talking about national security and the intelligence community. Um, that's one kind of surveillance, but the one that we're probably more familiar with is police organization, sure. law enforcement, sure. and that it, it follows. It, it all falls under the same legal rubric constitutionally, which is the Fourth Amendment, um, which protects us from unreasonable searches and seizures, etc. Um, and so, the, the the when we when we talk about keeping safe, uh, the definition of safe is often like, what does it mean to be safe? Um, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm in talking to you, and I know you'll probably have some thoughts on this. When I teach law students, I, I tell them to imagine that I have a no legal realism sign 
posted <laughs> inside the door. And I say, unless I say otherwise, assume that that sign is lit. Um, <laughs> what's interesting is that when I teach national security law, that sign is dark about as often as it's lit because as national security decisions go, they're not made in a vacuum. Um, there's, a, there's a rule of law and we want to adhere to it, but all these decisions made in the national security space, there's very much a political part of that decision. No presidential administration wants an attack on their watch that they should have foreseen. Right. Um, and so what happens sometimes, we have pendulum swings and the pendulum in the 70s, for example, uh, when we, you know, uh, we had Vietnam, Watergate, the uh, exposés of CIA chicanery and that sort of thing. In the 70s, the pendulum swung far to one side where we ended up getting FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which we can talk about. Um, but after 9-11, that pendulum swung hard the other direction. And, um, you know, I, I think most people would say that, yeah, we overreacted uh, to 9-11 to so that the pendulum ended up, and we passed laws that amended the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to make it even easier for the intelligence community to surveil U.S. citizens. Um, anyway, but as, yeah. so with this in the background is, and as the electronic surveillance environment continues to grow, which, you know, more technologies, we share information all the time, the intelligence community says, well, we wanna leverage that space because we're trying to do our job. And uh, in my experience, you know, both, you know, when I, in the military and as a contractor, most of this is in good faith. And I think the conversation has come kind of muddied by a public perception of what the intelligence community actually does. Um, but it's really muddy when, and this is usually at the state level, not at the federal level, when police or other law enforcement agencies do something highly unconstitutional. Um, and it makes, it makes it look like, well, this is everything the government's doing. Well, it, that may or may or may not be the case, depending on the circumstances. There was a recent I just read something this morning. Uh, I don't know what law enforcement agency wants to do this. I think it was at the state level, but it was a, they want to do, they, they want to create a facial uh, recreation based on DNA, which I have no idea. There's probably very little or no science on that. And then use that facial reconstruction in a uh, facial recognition software. My God, that sounds aspect. terrible. That sounds terrible. Well, I mean, there's, yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, that's, there's so many things that are probably wrong with that. Yeah. Not least of which there's probably constitutional issues, but anyway, that's- Okay, that's we'll get, we'll, we'll go, okay. We see. Let's see the horror stories, but it's, yeah, yeah, it is that balancing. And and so what we do as, as okay. lawmakers, we try to make that balance work. So. Um, before we get into how citizens can challenge government surveillance they think is violative of the Fourth Amendment, before we get into that, hey. um, in, in America in 2024, I keep saying 2023, but I guess it's 2024. In America in 2024, what are the, you know, in, in, in a quick summary, obviously not detailed fashion, what are the main statutes that give the federal government the right to spy on um, Americans? Maybe Americans talking to foreigners, but I'm, I'm not worried. I'm not talking about here what we can do to two people no. talking in Afghanistan who aren't American citizens. Right. About American citizens, what laws gives the, give the federal government the right to eavesdrop on us? Yeah, well, okay, so, so broadly speaking, um, we're talking about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, probably, okay. when we're talking I about see. the intelligence community. But yeah. just to provide a little bit of background to this, there was a case back in 1972 called 
U.S. v. U.S. District Court. This is, we refer to it as the Keith case now because the, the actual citation is, you know, confusing. Um, but there, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected this argument made by the Nixon administration at the time that the Fourth Amendment did not apply if they were doing domestic national security in the name of national security, uh, or domestic national surveillance in the name of national security. So um, this was a question that really hadn't been answered before. So it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, actually, when you're doing this sort of surveillance, even in the name of national security, the Fourth Amendment will apply. But what the Keith Court did was, well, go ahead. Well, what I find interesting about that is, I'm sorry, and again, I'm a novice on these issues, is 1972. Well, that's the same year as Lade versus Tatum we're going to talk about. So on the one hand, this is is such a Supreme Court thing to do. And before I forget, I do have to go back one conversation and say, your light about legal realism needs to be on on all constitutional law cases, not just cases (laughs) involving national security. That's a subject for a different day. Um, No, so the court says that when the, when, when the, so it's interesting, the Nixon administration says it's not surprisingly, we want to spy on Americans. And when we're doing that for national security reasons, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. The court says no, which I think, I think sounds like the right decision to me. I mean, it does apply, rejects the Nixon administration argument. Fourth Amendment does apply. That same year, we get, and let's, let's get right into it. We get this huge case, Laird versus Tatum, challenging that the way the army is surveilling American citizens. And right. the court says you have no standing to do it. So yes, you can challenge it on the merits if you can find standing. Good luck with that, Laird versus Tatum. So why don't we transition to Laird and tell us about the background of that case. I'll remind people this case is 1972. The 60s are still going on. I was alive. The, six, the 1960s really go to about 1973 or 74. So Kent State is 71. There are protests in the streets. Cities are burning. America is going up in flames. Nixon is, part, is, is threatening law and order campaigns. And then we get this Laird versus Tatum. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important to wrap up on Keith because Keith was okay. in, the, in the midst of all of that. Okay. And the reason the Keith case came to light was the CIA had an office in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which, you know, now seems a little weird, but that office got bombed, and that's what the the, the defendants were were being charged with. Um, and this would, you know, normally this is ordinary crime, but because the Nixon administration saw this as national security, they said, "Well, we don't need a warrant for this." Well, uh, and, and Jeff, I'm sorry, but for people who don't know, Ann Arbor, Michigan, is the yeah. birthplace of something called the SDS movement, which was yeah. a major protest movement in the '60s. Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Berkeley, with it, and maybe Columbia, yeah. with the three you know, centers. I mean, but the reason why the why CIA set up shop there and yeah. and the 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 uh, perpetrators of the bombing or the accused were uh, at least one of them were a member of, of the White Panthers, which is uh, and there's a musical history there too for all the yes. MC5 fans out there. But yes. uh, we won't talk about that. No. Anyway, Keith did we set up three categories, right? It said criminal investigations, Fourth Amendment, no question. Um, foreign intelligence gathering, um, that's you know you're gathering in, intelligence that you know either a, a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power that's they did they kind of punted on it later in 1978 we get FISA the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act but when they said for domestic national security fourth amendment applies but any as long as the standard is reasonable under the fourth amendment um, we may accept that standard so maybe you don't need a warrant per se or maybe you don't need probable cause but it still has to be reasonable but they left that a big gray area okay uh, so what happens is yeah, during all this time, there's riots, uh, and and it you know for those I mean I was barely alive at the very end of this era, 
Um, so I didn't see any of it, but you know, you read about it. It was, there were riots regularly. The National Guard was, was called out hundreds of times. Um, cities were burning, Detroit, Watts, you know, it was, it, it was pretty crazy. And the, the military, um, because they saw this, actually, they didn't see it. This was actually part of their mission, domestic. If, if the police could not handle a domestic situation, the National Guard or some other armed service would be brought in. Right. And they said part of this is they need to do something called intelligence preparation of the battlefield, meaning that they need to know everything about what the area is. So they need to know things like, can a bridge support a, a truck of this size? Uh, can, you know, what are the roads like? They, they have to do all this for the major cities. So when they started doing this, they collecting intelligence on these cities, they also said, well, wait, shouldn't we also be collecting intelligence on the people in these cities? And they started collecting intelligence on individuals. Now, this is the military doing this, not, not the FBI. Right. Well, I mean, the FBI was doing it, but the military was doing it on their own as well. So they had files on Martin Luther King. They had files on individuals. And one of the individuals they had a file on was this guy named Arlo Tatum. And Arlo Tatum was kind of an interesting story. He was a Midwestern kid. He uh, became a Quaker. Well, he was a Quaker, but he really got dedicated to pacifism at an early age. And during World War II, he uh, refused to, to be in, inducted. And um, he could actually, and, and he wouldn't accept conscientious subjector status either. He said, you know, to do to have anything to do with the military would be wrong in his eyes. So he said, no, I can't do that either. So he opted to go to jail. And and bear in mind, World War II, 1942, to say that you wouldn't even do conscientious objector was very dangerous. Yes. Um, you forget the number, but hundreds of Jehovah's Witnesses were tortured, not not by the state, but you know, they were they were beat up, they were tarred and feathered, some were killed, lynched, uh, because they would they refused to serve. Uh, so this was not something that you took lightly. Anyway, he went to jail for two years, got out. Um, just just after World War II, Truman signed the Selective Service Act, which meant that he he could be drafted. He refused to register, so he went to jail again for two years. This um, man is committed to. This man is really committed. Well, I mean, he believed it. I mean, he and yeah. this is why he said, I, you know, they said, well, he was in Canada at the time, for example, and he would have aged out within a year. And they said, just stay in Canada for a year. And he said, no, I can't do that in good conscience. I have to go back and tell them. Uh, no, I cannot serve, and then wow. right back to jail. So after that, he um, he he got he got involved with a conscientious objector uh, group in um, I believe it was in Philadelphia, and he was uh, making speeches and organizing rallies. And this is in the '60s now. Um, Vietnam was just uh, ramping up. This was the early '60s, and so the army had a file on him because he was advocating for uh, people to object to to the war. Um, and, uh, there's a, there's a guy, uh, an army, somebody with very similar background to me, this guy named Christopher Pyle, um, who I actually got a chance to talk to in the writing of this book. He, he was a, a young, uh, army intelligence officer who was assigned to a, a base that doesn't exist anymore in Maryland, uh, where he discovered this program. He didn't know it existed. This was this, uh, the CONUS, this is, uh, army speak for continental U.S., um, CONUS intelligence uh, section, which was the Army's section for collecting intelligence within the United States. Jeff, can I stop you there for one second? Yeah. So, so it's nineteen, it's, it's nineteen sixties, and, and the Army is conducting surveillance of Americans. Do we know if this went on before, like in like in like famously in World War One, we arrested people for handing out, you know, Eugene Debs for handing out a pamphlet? Yeah. I mean, yeah, were they were they? Go ahead. Yeah, this is early twentieth century. Uh, this was a reaction. 
you saw this both in law enforcement when the, when the nascent FBI would, would pre-exist the FBI. They started doing it. The Army was doing it as well because there okay. was a great fear of anarchists that, that right. came out of the late 19th century and right. went into the 20th century. So, so, there, so was, there was precedent yeah. for all this is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, there was like yeah. the Haymarket bombings and that sort of thing. So this was all... Okay. They, didn't, they were new, not nearly as sophisticated about it sure. as they became in the 60s. In the 60s, computers were available, not like right. today, but right. you, you could do, you could, uh, but do much larger data sets and, and analyze them. So anyway, so he saw this, uh, this is a Christopher Pyle, um, saw it, and when he was thinking about it, he got out of the Army, he went, got his PhD at Columbia, and he was still thinking about it, and he wrote an article in um, 1970. Uh, about what he found, and it was published in the Washington Monthly, which is you know left a left wing kind of publication or not left wing. I mean it's whatever. It's a great magazine. They're publishing a lot of con law stuff now and doing a really good job with it. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's still around, right? And so yeah. they published this in 1970. It, it, it was he didn't know what kind of reaction he got. Would get it went huge uh, because this was just at the time when we were discovering things about the CIA we didn't like the COINTELPRO. There were, you know, this, that was, well, actually not, not quite then, but close. So this was, he, he caught the mood, um, you know, the, the, uh, the spirit of the day, I guess. Um, and he, he actually, out of this, he got, he got put on Nixon's enemies list and got, yes. uh, he was targeted by the IRS and, you know, all the things that happened, bad things that happened to people that made it to Nixon's enemies list. But um, this got right, um, when this happened, Arlo Tatum and a number of others sued. Um, uh, on they, they, they filed a lawsuit. They wanted the court to say what what the what the what the U.S. government actually what the military was doing was unconstitutional. It was an unconstitutional chilling of their First Amendment rights. And chilling is sort of a it's a it's a kind of a funny claim because you're not claiming that you you know you uh, you did something or you weren't allowed. It, it's it said you. You couldn't do it because you we were afraid to do it. And they filed in um, district court in D.C. And the, the Jeff, hold on, hold on, let me pause right there. Yeah, uh, cir circa 1972. Of course, the law has changed since then. But circa nine, a little bit, a little bit. But since 1970, but, but circa 1972, the yeah. whole idea that someone whose speech is chilled by a statute, not someone who's being punished for speech they've engaged right. in in the past, but someone who's afraid to speak in the future because of this law or that law. Circa 1972, that was a well-accepted claim in First Amendment jurisprudence. It is less accepted today by a significant, it's still accepted a little bit, but back then, I just want the audience to understand, they weren't making a, a new, bold claim. No, it wasn't this, novel. Yeah. Yes, it wasn't novel in any way, shape, or form. In fact, there was a moment of time in the 60s when this chilling of speech idea was so powerful that a majority of the Supreme Court held that federal district court judges could enjoin state criminal prosecutions if the state defendant said, my speech is being chilled by the statute I'm being prosecuted under. That case got reversed, but, from, but, it, was, but it was there for, for several years. So I just want to make the point that Tatum was not, I'm sorry, um, uh, yeah, Tatum was not bringing a wild, bizarre claim. This chilling speech claim oh, no. has substantial yeah, merit. It, 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 was, it was not, well, Here's the problem with that claim, though. Yeah. And, and I, I'm not saying a legal problem. It, it, well, so they drew a, a guy by the name of Judge Hart as their judge, who was a very conservative judge um, and was had no sympathy. What, he was a World War II vet. He had no sympathy for 
anybody that was against the war. This was <laughs> the case that he was not very happy to. That's uh, unlucky. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was highly unlucky. And yeah. so he, he looked at the claim. He said, wait a minute. So you're telling me um, that your speech is chilled. Um, if you're so afraid, how did you make it to court today? Uh, yeah. I mean, he didn't quite that blunt about it, but it was a very dumb argument. Lines. Like, how can you be chilled if you're making this claim in, in open yeah. court? You're, you're clearly not that afraid. Uh, this came up in the in the D.C. So when it went before Judge Hart, um, this was just as so. Remember, there's Christopher Powell's magazine article had just come out. In the background, um, a number of other former military people in military intelligence were writing to, to uh, Pyle saying, yeah, I saw stuff like this too. And they were providing additional testimony. This is sort of in the background. When, when the, when the uh, Tatum plaintiffs went to court, there's, there's some people said like, if they had waited a year to file a claim, they would, there might, might've been a different result. But because there wasn't a lot of evidence to go in other than testimonial evidence, that, that the Tatum plaintiffs brought with them to court, Judge Hart said, I'm not going to hear any of your, your you know, the, I'm not going to hear any of this testimony as evidence. Um, I just, I'm, I'm looking at this, and the, this looks, Judge Hart said, this looks no worse than a newspaper clipping service. You know, this, what's the difference? So they, they say that you made a speech at, at a, you know, um, a friend's meeting in, in Philadelphia or Germantown. Um, so what? You know what? How is this chilling your speech? Just they could have got this out of the newspaper. So right. Judge Hart dismisses it. Um, this is on a twelve b six motion. On the merits. On the merits. Well, kind of on the merits because okay. you know there were no merits. To, he didn't allow any of the other merits to get into the argument. So right. on the I mean, merits, what, what, what I'm saying though is, what, Jeff, what I'm saying is it wasn't dismissed for lack of standing, which is how it eventually gets dismissed at the Supreme. No, Court. not 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 at the at the trial court yeah. level. No, it was just, it was twelve be sixed out, and yeah. um, so under the federal rules, you know, there yeah. was no no yeah no basis for a claim. Anyway, so with Tatum, you know, they don't even wait for the judge to write his opinion. They knew, you know, he he ruled from the bench and he was going to write his opinion in a week. They they filed immediately uh, with the D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit comes back and says, you know what? We, we think there might be an issue here. Um, and so they sent it back. Uh, they, they, they overturned the 12B6 and they sent it back to the district court and they said, we want you to answer four questions. Uh, they say, you know, the, um, the, we want to know what the extent of the Army domestic intelligence system is, uh, you know, what other methods are, to what part does the domestic intelligence gathering system, you know, is it, is it, is it necessary? Is it reasonable under the Constitution? Three, whether the existence of any overbroad actions within that structure, um, you know, might have an inhibiting effect, a chilling effect on the plaintiffs. And four, what relief could be accorded um, if all of the above, we, you know, if there is some chilling. So they sent that back to Judge Hart. Didn't even get to trial. I mean, didn't even get to rehear it again because the government then appealed that decision. Which is, you know, it's kind of confusing because there is, I mean, there was a final decision on the merits, kind of, you know, technically. Yeah. Um, and so this is not, you know, it, 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 it gets, a, you know, procedurally it gets a little weird. But these, the government says right after the, after the uh, district court, or I'm sorry, the circuit court wants to send it back to the district. The government says we're appealing to the Supreme Court. And when, in their, uh, when they apply for cert... They're, they ask two questions. One, is their claim just, is it justiciable? 
Can you even answer this at all? Um, and two, do they have, even if it is justiciable, do they have standing to raise this question? Uh, and, and so what was interesting, like during this time with all these appeals, more and more evidence is coming in about this program, but it can't, but the Supreme Court, well, can't, well, doesn't, let's just say doesn't or can't, depending on who you ask, they don't consider any of that new evidence because it never made it into the record. And so they're going purely on what came out of Judge Hart's courtroom, which was very little because he didn't, remember, he didn't allow a lot of testimony. Right. Talk anyway. about a catch-22, yeah. It, it was, and so it, it got to the Supreme Court, and the, the long story short is they decide 5-4 in favor of the government and say that, well, they didn't reach the, the just, well, they didn't really, they didn't need to reach justiciability because they get out of it outstanding. They say yeah. that the, there is no, you have shown, you cannot show any, the, 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 the requisite injury to meet the standing requirement to, in order to bring a case to have it heard on its merits. Um, and it's actually interesting, Jeff, I, I reread it this morning. And it's actually surprisingly short. And actually, there's almost nothing in the opinion. They, it's a lot of recitation of statutes and facts and things. But um, they don't even go through the traditional kind of, it's 1972, so standing is just taking off as a separate independent doctrine. Um, yeah, this is pre-late law and, yes, and, you know, like yes, the 80s and yes, 90s cases, yes. right? But still, it's interesting, um, But I want I, because I want to make sure we get, I want to make sure we connect this case to the to the Clapper case of just a few years right. ago. So, but I, so I want to go through this relatively quickly. Besides the standing issue, which which I think most standing experts think was maybe decided incorrectly in this case. Leaving that aside, there's a whole bringing it to common to current events. There's a whole Justice Rehnquist recusal issue. That is, so there have been, in my understanding, four memos in American history where a justice okay. explained their reason not to recuse, which is an appallingly small number. I talked about that with Lewis Ferrilli a few weeks ago because he's an expert and he was on the podcast. Um, but in any event, Justice Rehnquist should never have heard this case, in my opinion, which would have made it 4-4, which would have meant the lower court decision gets upheld and we live in a different world. Why? Tell, me, t tell the audience about Rehnquist and what he did. Yeah, so when, when, Tatum, when the Tatum case first went to court, um, Justice Rehnquist, William Rehnquist, was not Justice Rehnquist. He was Assistant Attorney General Rehnquist. He was in the Nixon administration under um, A.G. Mitchell. Um, and when the case was originally heard, he was actually subpoenaed. He gave testimony before uh, Senator Urban's subcommittee on constitutional rights. And he opined, he actually wrote a memo and spoke on the issue where he said that the Tatum plaintiffs, which again was just in the trial court, he said they did not have standing. He so this is as assistant right. attorney general. So this is an amazing thing. So Rehnquist testifies under oath to a yep. congressional subcommittee that the plaintiffs in Laird versus Tatum don't have standing. Then, let me finish this thought. Then eventually he decides the case and doesn't recuse himself. Decades <laughs> later, Justice Scalia was at a conference, I believe, or, or maybe being interviewed by a reporter, but whatever it was. And there was a case challenging the Pledge of Allegiance in the lower courts. And Scalia made a very quick offhand remark, ah, that's a stupid case. Those plaintiffs can't win that case, something like that. And he <laughs> recused himself from, and he wrote a memo explaining why. He recused himself, I think, from that case because he made an offhand comment. He even admitted he hadn't really looked at it, but he made an offhand comment, that's just stupid. Whereas here we have sworn testimony, <laughs> yeah. sworn testimony that the plaintiffs didn't have standing. And then he goes to the Supreme Court and he hears the case. He writes a memo, right, defending it. Well, 
Yeah, so the first memo he writes is prior to the justice, he writes a memo, a legal memo. This yeah. is an official decision from the AG's office saying that they think legally there's no standing in, in the Tatum case. So that's that's before. In the meanwhile, while this is while the Tatum case is being going through appeals, um, Rehnquist, so Justice Harlan retires in 72, Rehnquist is nominated, gets a seat on the court, and um, everyone assumed that he would recuse. Um, this is as when the when oral argument is approaching, they think, okay, there's no way that Justice Rehnquist is going to sit for this case. And when they show for oral argument, he's there on the bench. And then they say, well, okay, he's on the bench. It's okay for here. He, he, maybe he wants to hear the arguments. Um, that's fine too. But we think he's going to recuse from the decision. He did not recuse from the decision. And it ended up being 5-4. Now, what's interesting is, I want to read, this is actually, at the time, it's changed a little bit somewhat, but there's section 455 of the judicial code. This is actual statute now that regulates all federal courts. And it said at the time. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but Jeff, hold on. Before you oh, read yeah. this, to be clear, the court has said this is not binding on, on, on itself. Go ahead. Well, no, you, you know, if you ask a layperson to read this language, it seems. I know. Of, let's, let's, let's look, take a look at it. So, okay. so any justice or judge of the United States shall disqualify himself in any case in which he has a substantial interest, has been of counsel, or has been a material witness, or is so related to or connected with any party or his attorney as to render it improper, in his opinion, or maybe that's how you do it, for him to sit on the trial, appeal, or other proceeding therein. Material witness. He was clearly a material witness. There's another, he has a substantial interest, perhaps. I, who knows? But, I mean, it's, <laughs> if you looked at that, and, and as, I mean, and look, when I was an officer, one of the things that when you're talking about things like corruption, you want to avoid even the appearance yes. of corruption. Um, so even if you know, like, no, there's no problem here, but we don't want appearances. So this is why we have rules, for example, if you're in uniform, you can't be at a political rally. Um, even if you're just there as a spectator, they don't want you there because it, it creates the right. appearance of impropriety. Right. You think a Supreme Court justice would take this seriously, but no. So he, he, he ruled it was a 5-4 decision, ruled in, in, uh, in, in this was uh, Chief Justice Berger wrote the opinion, and it, it, you know, it's very Berger-esque for those who are, you know, yes. aficionados of, of his writing, which is like, yeah, anyway. A lot, a lot of words and no meaning. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, there's, there's a fair bit of fluff there. But yeah, it's, but. Um, so Jeff, for, for longstanding uh, listeners of this podcast, yeah. or anyone else for that matter, um, Justice Rehnquist not recusing himself in Laird versus Tatum when he obviously, and just obviously should have, is exhibit number 496 on my list of reasons why the Supreme Court's not a court. We won't harbor on this, but a real judge would never, ever, ever have sat on this case. I want to be clear, though. This case was 5-4. It was controversial, and it was huge. Without Rehnquist's part, the result changes if Rehnquist doesn't participate. I mean, Senator Irvin was actually there. He was part, he was a witness. He actually, during oral argument, so that Senator Irvin made part of the oral argument before the court. I mean, it was that was very high profile. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, what, what, Jeff, I'm sorry, but but the point I want to make is, in yeah. an incredibly high profile case that the whole media is watching, oh, that involves sure. the First Amendment rights of American citizens being being surveilled by domestic military authorities. Yeah. Justice Rehnquist in a front page New York Times case. Here's sorry about that. Here here's a case. Um, that he unequivocally should not have heard. This is not so, some obscure ERISA case. This is a major case. No, and, and, and so for that reason, the, 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 uh, the Tatum plaintiffs make the 
pretty unusual move. They, they, they petitioned for a rehearing. Yes. And in that petition, they also asked that Justice Rehnquist recuse himself. And um, they, that was when the memo that you referenced, Justice Rehnquist wrote a memo on his behalf saying that he could not recuse. It was a very legalistic memo. It was not, it's, it's a little painful to read, but he, he gave three arguments. He said, first, Section 455 does not require recusal. Okay. The second argument is judicial precedent was on his side. Okay, that's also questionable. And the third one, which was really the, the one that he really had to reach for, without his participation, he and the court would be remiss. They would not be doing their duty. And yeah, that's so stupid. Be, it would be to decide, uh, you know, constant, hard constitutional questions. And he said, like, if I hadn't been there, it would have been 4-4, and it would have gone back to, you know, it, they would have been, had, they had standing. Um, and who knows, like you would have had other jurisdictions disagreeing. And he said, that's not, we're, we're there to answer the hard questions. And so he's, yeah. he said, no, it was my duty to stay for on the, that. For, for the record, and then I want to move on. Uh, again, if, anybody, if anybody's interested in recusal in the Supreme Court, Louis Ferrelli, who wrote the book on the subject, was on this pod about three pods ago. But as, and, and, we, and he and I disagree on this, but the whole idea that, that the rule of law requires the court to hear a case because of quorum or other reasons, like in this case, 4-4, and then a lower court decision. The whole idea that we can ignore the rule of law and all the values that go into recusal because the court has to be fully manned or fully personed mm -hmm. is absolutely absurd and doesn't make any sense to me. If, 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 you're not, if the judge shouldn't hear a case because of ethical reasons, the judge shouldn't hear a case for ethical reasons, and we'll figure out the rest of it. Um, Jeff, I, I want to move on because we have like 15, yeah. 20 minutes left. So this is 1972. Yep. And had the court reached the merits, it would have been a major constitutional law opinion, but it avoids the merits. And then eventually, I'm jumping way ahead now, sorry for the quick escalator here. We go through the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, we get computers, we get the internet, we get very sophisticated spying tools that maybe weren't available in 1969, you know. Um, and now we have the Clapper case which is, well, in 9-11, of course, I'm going to skip over 9-11 and all of the things that happened after 9-11 that made it worse. Yeah. Is that, is that fair? Made surveillance well, I mean, much... I, I, I think we'll end up referring to it, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and then we get a law, the, 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 the FISA law, that allows the federal government to intercept communications between Americans and people abroad by applying for a warrant to the special court. And It's not a warrant, but... Okay, right. I, permission. Excuse me. They get permission. I'm sorry. You're right. They get permission, yep. right, to, 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 to listen on my – let's just take hypothetical. I'm a lawyer in Atlanta. I have a client in Paris. Might be a terrorist. Might not be a terrorist. Um, this law allows the government to listen on my conversation with him as long as he's in a foreign country. Is that correct? It, it, I mean, it, the, the rules are a little bit more complicated than that, but generally speaking, I think that's okay. To, it, it's a very FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which, by the way, came out of all of this that we were talking about in the 70s. It came out of that. It was a reaction to government surveillance. So they said, we yes. need to put laws in place. So yeah. they created this FISA court that would hear these cases, but it's a very permissive law. It, 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 uh, there's some judicial supervision, but it's limited, and they're ordered in a secret court. Um, and it hears uh, government applications ex parte. There's, I mean, that that has changed a little bit now. But but before, when it first started out, it's and and FISA very rarely does not grant an application. Right. right. 
So uh, post 9 11, they added to that. The Patriot Act modified it. So the FISA, there used to be a rule that it had to be the that the purpose for the FISA surveillance had to be uh, foreign intelligence gathering, not law enforcement. And the Patriot Act said it could it only had to be a significant purpose now. So law right. enforcement could also get in on the action. Okay. Which expanded it. And then there's the uh, the FISA Amendments Act and the, the uh, Protect America Act expanded it even further. As a matter of fact, the Protect America Act said, well, probable cause is not necessary anymore. Now you just have to be reasonably believe that the person is located outside the United States to acquire that foreign intelligence. So before there was a probable cause standard, very close okay. to a warrant standard, a Fourth Amendment standard. Now it's reasonable belief. If the government reasonably believes that one of the parties, at least one of the parties, is outside the United States, they can listen in on that conversation. But if there's if there's terrorism suspected, right, or some kind, or no, open ended. Oh, well, I mean, there has to be, there's a national security purpose, but it doesn't have to be the purpose anymore. It only has okay. to be significant purpose. Okay. So a bunch of reporters and lawyers, let's focus on the lawyers. Let's forget the reporters for a second. So a, a bunch of people bring suit and <laughs> their claims to my mind are re relatively reasonable. What they say is we don't. So the first question is that they, they claim this flies to fourth amendment on the merits, but before we get to the merits, we have to talk about standing and they claim our in for those who don't know, um, Supreme Court has held that Article Three requires personal injury that can be that was caused by the defendant that can be redressed by the court. At the end of this pod, I'm going to spend two minutes talking about standing. But for now, I mean that test. But for now, they had to show personal injury. And what they said was, um, among other things, I can't talk. To, I'm in I'm in I'm in New York talking to a client in Paris. I can no longer just call him up because if I call him up, I'm worried the FBI is going to be listening or they say someone's going to be listening. Sure. So I have to spend money to fly to Paris. That loss of money is the quintessential personal injury that normally allows for standing. Normally, you have to show life, you know, an injury to life, liberty, or property. It's usually property, you know, in most cases, sometimes liberty, but yeah. often property. Um, so they say we have to spend a lot more money. We can't say well, our speech is chilled. We can't talk to our clients the way we want to. And one would think the attorney-client privilege would find a way in here, too. We can't even have a privileged conversation about this. Mm -hmm. um, and they asked the government to tell them, are you spying on us? Are you spying on And of course, the government said, we're not saying anything. The government gave no information. We can't tell you. We won't tell you. And that's right. the posture the case gets to when Justice Sam Alito gets his hands on it. What does the court hold and why does the court hold it? Well, before we get to that, yeah. it's important to note that this case came out before the Snowden revelations. Okay. Um, so what do you mean by that? Be very specific about the Snowden revelations. Oh, so the mean? Snowden revelations, which were what, 20, I want to say 2013? Yeah, something like that. 2014. Uh, this is Ed Snowden, who is now resident of Moscow or whatever. Um, <laughs> no, he, no country. Resident of no country. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, yeah, uh, he's a man without a country, right? He's, yeah. He, um, he leaked uh, a number of actually a large amount of information about programs especially nsa programs that were uh like there's one called prism that were based on fisa a lot of were, were legal under fisa or at least interpreted to be legal under fisa um that were collecting vast amounts of information on u.s citizens um and uh that came out later and so this was that sort of proof did not exist when Clapper went to went to trial and, and okay. was appealed to the Supreme Court. So yeah, I, I, but, I'm tell, but, I, but I'm telling everybody listening, it wouldn't have mattered. 
that proof would have made no difference to the result in this case. Probably not. No, I mean, and, and again, proof was, I mean, it, it's, it, yeah. but, it, but, but the likelihood that they were being surveilled was very high. Well, they you said know, that, were, and they said that, and the court didn't buy it. Anyway, so, well, so, so. Right. So and, the, and just, I mean, I want to, and I know you're going to talk about this, but I want to yeah. say, you know, when you talk about personal injury necessary for standing, the, the standard is, right, I mean, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, but you have yeah. to suffer an injury in fact, meaning it's got to be concrete and particularized and actual or imminent. It can't be conjectural or hypothetical. Right. And that's what the court said. Look, some, this future harm that you're talking about or this conjectural harm, not enough for standing. You know, that you, you can't show me, you can't prove to me that you were surveilled and so therefore you had either had to travel or you had to buy expensive cryptographic gear or something like that. You can't prove to me that you actually needed that. Um, so, and, and this was, Justice Alito has been, has, he, he's set the, the issue of standing and privacy back, um, well, quite a while. I mean, yes. he, he shows up, he's a major figure in a lot of the major standing cases. Yeah, and, and we should say there's a whole nother aspect of standing and privacy involving what happens when companies with your own, with your information, yep. release that information either negligently or inaccurately. And Alito's tried to make all those cases non-justiciable as well. So, but, but, but that's not today. It, that's not the interesting today. part that, but so, so Clapper, which did decide that, that this, the plaintiffs had no standing, they feared that the NSA would be engaging in surveillance that, you know, that they, they said, the plaintiff said, the future surveillance is certainly impending. And the court said, you're only speculating about future surveillance. And that's not enough. You cannot manufacture standing by incurring costs in anticipation of imminent harm. That's but the, the information to prove the standing was in the government's exclusive possession. That's the right. most amazing thing. The court says the government doesn't have to give this information. And without it, you can't have standing, even though the information is totally in the hands of the government. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, why couldn't. So why. So. I guess I'm a little. There's one part of this, there's one corner of this case that I did that the, the court didn't talk about, I don't think, that gets me really crazy, which is why couldn't there be an in-camera conversation? Even ex I'll even go further, ex parte communication uh -huh. with just the government and the judge, where the government has to say one way or the other, either we're surveilling these plaintiffs or we're not. And maybe it doesn't and 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 if the answer is we're not, okay. But if the answer is we are, then it's a different case. Why can't they do that in camera? Okay, so there's there's a a weird and and very controversial doctrine called the state secrets doctrine. Yeah, which gets applied our state secrets privilege. Yeah, where the executive can claim this is a state secret and even in camera, uh, ex parte, you know, which does happen. But they yes. can they can make this claim saying that this is too sensitive even for that. But um, they didn't. The point is they didn't have to make that claim in this case. No, it wasn't necessary. The courts, it, it didn't even get to that far because, again, you're not even getting to the... It, here, so here's the catch-22, right? I can't get to the merits because the merits depend on secret information that I right. can't get. And because I can't get... I mean, it's, it's circular. It's like, well, we're not going to let you get to the merits until you can prove injury. When, and, and here's another wordplay. Um, the, in, in Clapper, Alito said that the future harm has to be certainly impending. A, a phrase that had not been used before, I don't think. No, I mean, it's it was not... brand new. As a matter of fact, Justice Breyer in his dissent yes. says, no, 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 the requirement is actually highly likely. Yes. Um, that was what the language was before. But no, but Justice Alito said, no, 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 the standard is certainly impending. Um, uh, although, although standard... and for the legal realists in the room, despite the sign being off or on, um, there's a footnote, and I, I taught the case yesterday in federal courts. There, mm -hmm. there is a, there is a foot. So in the in the text, 
This is, this, is, this is so Siegel, the court not being a court. In the text, the court says the standard is certainly impending, a standard that comes out of nowhere and almost impossible to meet. In a footnote, the court does say, we have in the past referred to this as substantial likelihood, which is yeah. a very different standard than oh, certainly yeah. impending. And in that footnote, the court approves of the Monsanto case, which applied a, a substantial likelihood standard. And the court says, ah, we may use this in the future, we may not. So we don't even know what the standard is going forward. Yeah, so standing, my favorite description of standing doctrine is it's the Rorschach test of the federal judiciary. <laughs> Uh, judges see in standing what they want to see in standing. Yes. Um, hey, I once said, I said in the LA Times, standing is what standing does. Same idea. Yeah. And actually, I, I think I, I titled an op-ed with that. So I apologize. I, I owe you royalties or something. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the, the Justice Breyer quite rightly put out a very strongly worded dissent saying that this this has never been the standard. And yeah. you're, you're creating a new standard. and and But then you're also giving yourself an out like, well, we, we may not apply this standard in different circumstances yeah it, it was it it was a bad decision for a couple for a lot of reasons um but the, for privacy it was especially bad because even in non-government privacy cases where it's you, you mentioned a corporation say or something like that or yeah. a breach or something along those lines clapper gets applied even though the facts are much different clapper gets applied to uh to withhold standing if you look at cases, re more recent cases like Spokio and TransUnion, which have limited standing even further in private, private uh, privacy actions, you know, how is Clapper, you know, why are we applying Clapper? This is, you know, it's, it's you know, if, if, if what Justice Alito was implying, I think, is that, well, this is government and there's national security issues at stake and so we need to make the bar higher. I'm not saying I agree with it, but you can see, well, okay, it's a different standard. Now, when we're talking sure. about, you know, Spokio, a private company, why are we applying that same standard? Um, and the answer is, well, because Alito decided that case as right. well. So, so um, Jeff, I'm going to do about two minutes of monologue here on standing, then ask you a real big question to finish up. And then I'll give All you right. the floor for the real big question in a second. Um, so, the, I, you know, I have met liberal law professors, moderate law professors, conservative law professors, incredibly far right and incredibly far right, far left law professors. We disagree on everything, but we agree on one thing. Standing doctrine is incoherent to the core. I have yet to meet a scholar who does not believe standing doctrine as it currently exists is incoherent to the core. And the best thing, that, I want to make two quick points. The personal injury requirement that the court has said is absolutely a constitutional minimum in every case filed in federal court comes out of Article 3. It is not waivable. It is subject matter jurisdiction. The government has the has the obligation, I'm sorry, the court has the obligation to raise it on its own. It is just like the amount of controversy. It is a subject matter jurisdiction thing. Personal injury is required for all cases in federal court. That requirement is not in the text of the Constitution, and it's inconsistent with the original meaning of the Constitution, where strangers of the court were allowed in England a common law in very many different circumstances. The point I want to make about all that to tie a bow on it is Justice Scalia is the leading proponent of a rigid standing test about personal injury. And, it, and he wrote his most famous law review article ever is on standing. It's what got him, made him very famous. He has never once, to, never once, to the best of my knowledge, asked the question, what is the original meaning of Article 3 when it comes to, to and it turns out that personal injury is inconsistent. It's true there's no um, advisory opinions. But, but, but that just suggests there's no issue. 
There was an issue in Clapper. There was an issue in Tatum. It was live. It was real. It affected the real world. There's no reason the party's under Article 3. And then finally, on Clapper, what the court did there just rubber stamps what scholars have been saying about standing since the 1960s. In the text, the court gives this really impossible-to-meet standard, um, certainly impending harm, which the lower courts can use in any standing case to dismiss the case. And then in the footnotes, it says, but sometimes we say substantial likelihood, which is much less standard, and we're not going to tell you if that's still good law, but we kind of think it is. So now a lower court judge who wants to hear a case can cite the footnote and use a substantial likelihood standing. And all that does is propagate this idea that standing is only about one thing. If they want to hear the case, they'll grant it. If they don't want to hear the case, they won't grant it. And now they have two different terms of art to use to decide, to explain why they're hearing it or why they're not hearing it, neither of which goes to the actual issue of whether they have standing in the case. End of monologue. Anything you object to and all that? No, I would say, actually, if you want a good illustration of that in the last year, look at the Mifepristone decisions coming out of the Fifth Circuit. Right, right. Who found standing in a case where there's clearly no standing. Okay. Yeah. Last big question, Jeff. We're almost out of time. And thank you for this. This has been wonderful. Of course. So what we've been talking about in a very, you know, kind of roundabout way is when should citizens have the right to go to court, leaving aside the merits, just the right to go to court and challenge government surveillance programs that certainly in 2024 had the potential for, you know, unbelievable abuse in the wrong hands. I'm not saying they're in the wrong hands. I'm just saying we have technology now that didn't exist in 1965 that raises the stakes, I think, of all of these questions. You've been in the military. Um, you understand both sides of this Bye. question. So I am curious. I don't want to talk legal doctrine here. <laughs> when well, should citizens have the right to get non-elected, life-tenured federal judges to take a serious look and rule on the merits of these kind of uh, surveillance programs, which I assume do keep us a little bit safer. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but maybe, you know, a tad safer anyway, if not a lot safer. Yeah. How should we view this? Well, I mean, so it really depends on perspective, like everything. Okay. I mean, the lawyer answer, right? It depends. But the, so the thing is to consider, I, I think the, the question is not the same as it was in 1972, or even with Clapper. I think the, the intelligence com community has i mean they're, they're still smarting um from you know there's there was a pr hit there was so i i think the intelligence community is pretty you know they, i don't think that's where we should or where we should lie it's really local and state law enforcement okay and private parties okay um, because the fourth amendment generally does its job pretty well i mean talk about exceptions as the fourth amendment we, uh, we could be okay. here all day but but the the real issue to me is the there's this third party doctrine that if I willingly share information with a third party or knowingly share information with a third party, I have lost all reasonable expectation of privacy in that in those data. The problem with that is that all these data that we're showing, that we're sharing with our cell phone company, with our cable company, with every company that we do business with online, all of those data are are there. We've shared it with them. The government, I mean, with some exceptions, location data being one of them. Uh, through Carpenter, um, the, the government can get at those data. And a matter of fact, there's many cases where state and local governments, especially, and the federal government, to be frank, have been buying data legally from data brokers, private hmm. data brokers who do nothing but collect data on us. Right. That's, the, I think, the much bigger concern. Now, okay. I, I, government in the 70s, Watergate, Nixon, all of that, yeah, the government was, that. that's who 
I think that really legitimately should be concerned about. Now it's private companies and how much data okay. they have on us. But if Trump is reelected, might that change? Uh, it's, you know, if, if we're relying on norms, yeah. it's a dangerous road because norms, yeah. as we've seen, can just yeah. fall away and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Um, this is why rule of law is so important and why, you know, we, standing should not be used as a cudgel. Um, to keep people away from the court unnecessarily when there is actual merit to their case. And that's exactly how it's been used when the court wants to use it that way. When it doesn't, it'll let, it'll let Texas sue, you know, for abortion pills, whatever. <laughs> okay. Jeff, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. I, I have to admit, I'm a little scared about all this technology and stuff, but you make my life a little bit less fearful every time I talk to you. So I appreciate it. Yeah, a little I, fear is good. A little, a little, a little fear, fear is good. Is good. Well, we'll leave it at that. A little fear is good, everybody. So is a little joy. Thank you, Jeff, so much for being here. All right. Thank you.